Okay. <laughs> well, it is that time again um, for our Date Your Mate conference coming up in June. Um, many of you have been going to this. We've been doing this every year. Um, how many of you have been, been attended this before? You can see these hands around you. Um, if you want to know what, this, what in the world this is about, uh, we try to slip away, uh, several of us, uh, several couples, uh, every year and have fun. We went to the Country Club Plaza in Kansas City last year. We're going to Dallas, Texas this year. Going to have a, an awesome time. Um, joiners in the Salis, our Date Your Mate um, group will be out there to answer any questions. And we really encourage couples. Matter of fact, every married couple, we encourage that even once a quarter, that you get away, um, even just for an overnight. There's just something about waking up in another bed um, with your spouse, of course. Um, just make that, <laughs> make that perfectly clear, okay? <laughs> perfectly clear, just got that edited properly there. Uh, there's something about just getting away and you don't have to cook breakfast, somebody serves you, somebody, you don't have to make the bed. There's just something about changing up the routine that can be a very powerful thing. And so once a year, at least, we try to do this all together and uh, it's really a fun time. So hopefully you can um, join us this year. Been doing this series on the life of Jesus during Epiphany here, which leads up to Lent and on into Easter. And uh, this idea of epiphany, we're looking for some ahas, these, these aha moments that we might have about the life of Jesus that, that we've not yet seen before. And so we've been looking at that. One of the beautiful metaphors about Jesus uh, in Scripture actually uses wedding language. Uh, it talks about he is the bridegroom and we, the church, are the bride. And somehow the connection between these two is heaven and earth um, colliding and connecting. And so we're going to follow that story for the, the next few weeks. It is also February, and it's something that in our culture we think about uh, love and romance and Valentine's Day and those kind of things. And so, so we're going to be looking the next few weeks at love, marriage, and other conundrums, other mysteries of our life. Now, we recognize that, that uh, you here at Sanctuary that really you don't need this personally, uh, that your marriages are pretty much just off the, t- off the charts. And I have several people stop me every Sunday and just go, Brent, you've just got to do something to kind of tone us down a little bit. We are just way, way too happy. And so, so um, but we just encourage you to listen because some of your neighbors... Some of your friends are struggling with some of this stuff, and some of them have even found that they're struggling with some disagreements uh, in their marriage, uh, with roommates, uh, with, with parents and siblings that uh, they're dealing with some disagreements. So just, just pay attention. Now, in marriage, when we think about disagreements, we always think of the top three, right? What are they? Sex, money, and household responsibilities. However... There are some new studies that have come out that I feel that I need to make you aware of. A new study that was done by Consumer Reports says that almost 40% of all couples argue over messiness. Can you imagine that, Brent? I can't. I know. I've learned to get over his messiness. (laughs) According to 60 Minutes and Vanity Fair, 36% of couples, and now this was a sample of 1,100 people that were surveyed, 36% of couples argue over the remote control. And think about that, because most of us have multiple TVs, so this is, you know, the people that actually stay in the same room. 
uh, the majority of those are, what should we watch next? And they say the primary argument is one person wants to watch sports and the other person wants to watch anything but sports on TV. So at our house, I think we're going to watch Gone with the Wind tonight, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, some, yeah, something yeah about there. five o'clock, something yeah, like that. So it's yeah. a long movie, so you got to start early. You know. But the highest percentage that we found of disagreement, 61% of American couples, and so this was a survey of 2,000 Americans, 61% argue over whether dishes should be pre-rinsed before they are put in the dishwasher or not. In fact, 40% of couples argue over how to load the dishwasher. That was a surprise to me when I was doing marriage counseling. It is amazing how many times I hear somebody say they don't load the dishwasher right. And I go, they do load the dishwasher? Yes, but it's not right, and I have to redo it. So here are the things about the dishwasher that you're arguing over. To pre-rinse or not pre-rinse, whether to pack the dishwasher or to go ahead and do two separate loads so they get clean, whether the knives and the silverware are pointing up or pointing down, location, 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 where you put different things in the dishwasher. And then the last one is plastic placement. Should it really go on the top rack or can you put it on the rack below? So that survey is what you are arguing over. Now, the good news is, whatever we disagree over, we still have the possibility of having healthy, whole marriages and resolving some of the things that we are dealing with. Gottman, who is a researcher uh, specifically in the field of marriage and family, said, couples who divorce have the same number of arguments as couples who remain married but the ones who remain married approach their disagreements in a different way. So we're going to be talking about how do we work this out in a marriage relationship and in other relationships. What are some key principles that can help us have healthy, whole relationships in our lives? So human love and relationships is probably one of the most challenging and confusing parts of our human journey. Now, we're going to start with a scripture that you've heard over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, it's used in, in more marriages and in more wedding ceremonies than almost any other scripture. Um, and our tendency is, once we kind of start, is to kind of even click off because we've heard it. But I just want you to hear uh, the orientation of each of these uh, elements of 1 Corinthians 13.4. It says, love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, love never fails. Now, if you look at each one of those, each one of these um, statements, these descriptors of what love is, are all oriented towards the benefit of others. It does not say that true love is fully satisfying, is always fun, fulfills every need that we have, is easy, makes one happy all the time, leads to excitement and adventure requires no sacrifice, 
reaps immediate benefits, will never involve suffering, and is always, always, always magical. Now, of course, those descriptors are ones that Janice and I have described our 35 years of marriage about, and, but we recognize that not everybody's going to be able to experience the full level of what we've experienced. And so, um, yeah, that's a big smile, okay, just kidding. Um, what if God made relationships not for our benefit? What if he made it not so that we just get our needs met? What if he made love and marriage and relationships so that we have the opportunity to give our life away to, to these significant people in our life? What if that's the purpose of it? What's that, what if that's the ultimate purpose is that we have somebody uh, in our life that, that we can fine-tune this sense of love towards? One of my favorite scriptures, we always talk about John 3.16, but one of my favorites is 1 John 3.16. It says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So marriage is the epitome of this. It's this opportunity that we have to, in a very focused way, in a very powerful way, um, to give, to lay our life down, um, to love and honor and cherish this person. What if that's the main reason for marriage in the first place? That's not what it looks like in the movies. In the movies, it's all so exciting and so romantic, and we spend 90 minutes watching this movie, and we miss each other going from this restaurant or that restaurant, or I chase you to the airport to tell you how much I really love you. And we watch this couple trying to find each other all the way through the movie, and they finally find each other, and you know they found their soulmate, and they're so happy, and we're smiling, and there's the wedding, and then the credits start to roll. And so once they've had a, the wedding, we're like, okay, I guess they're going to be blissfully happy for the next 70 years of their life. You know, they found their soulmate. So everything is fine and everything is wonderful. Unfortunately, that's not how marriage works. We have to work on our relationships. And the, your spouse is not created to be your personal need meter. Now, it looks that way in the movies. It looks like if I found the right person that everything I ever wanted will come true. And so I'm going to be happy forever. But we really believe that God has put us in a marriage relationship so that we can give to the other person. That our assignment is that he has put me with this other person so that I can invest in their life. I can bless them. I can be there to help them with the things that they need in their life. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't care about our needs. Of course, he cares about our, our needs. He loves us so much. But he has designed us so that when we give, we receive. And so we give to our partner and we receive back again. It's not as soon as I receive enough, then I'm going I'm to start giving to you. I'm waiting until you do everything right, and then I'm going to give back. We give first and know that God will bless us back in return. Now, that doesn't mean that he will bless us back in a way that our partner will always meet every one of our needs perfectly. That's not going to happen. One of the challenges of marriage is we have inappropriate expectations. We expect that everything is going to come from this person. God didn't design it that way. As a matter of fact, if we are not gaining the majority of our sense of self, the majority of our sense of security in life, our sense of validation, our sense of fulfillment from our own personal relationship with Christ, then we're in trouble. 
Because if that is not something that can satisfy our soul, then we are always going to be looking and trying to get people to, to do that instead. And people were never designed to be um, that core sense of fulfillment in our life. And so we're out there then kind of groping for the opportunities that, to try to get people to do that. Um, matter of fact, if we don't find our security as an individual, because there are times in our life where there are just not people available. Even if you're married, they are just not in a place where they can give right now. Or they can't give exactly the way you need it. Or there's just not friends to be had at the moment. And if we, are not, if we don't find that sense of security uh, in Christ, then we tend to go towards one of two extremes. One end of the continuum is that I will develop kind of a pleaser orientation. Is that, I, that all the people in my life, I'm just going to try to make them happy. I will, I'll even go to unhealthy extremes to try to make them happy. And because maybe if they're in a good mood, then they'll treat me nice. And then, voila, I'll be happy. Those folks usually end up pretty frustrated. Or we go to the other extreme, the other end of the continuum, which is control is that I'm not going to wait on this to happen. I'm not going to hope it happens. I have to have people treat me a certain way, and therefore I will make them do it. I'm going to tell them exactly what they need to do um, to, to make them me happy, and I'm going to stay on them until they do it right. And if, and, if, and if they don't do it right, they're going to get in big trouble. And so we have to find that core sense of, of foundation outside of people. Now, certainly our marriage relationship, I think, is a, a second key source, probably the the, the most significant human relationship that we could possibly have and this giving and receiving flow that can really take place. But I also think that, that uh, healthy friendships, uh, most of the time healthy, safe friends, friendships are same-gender friendships. It's a, it's a band of brothers or girlfriends that give and receive in their life together. Now, as a couple, if I have, if I have a friendship with another couple or a group of people, then there's certainly, that, that can also be safe. But then we also have a fourth area. And there may even be more than these four, but another area is our work. God has, God has designed us to do stuff, to do work, to fulfill a certain purpose and certain niche in the world, to give our life away to others in that way. And so we're going to get a certain sense of fulfillment from that. But if I have put all of my expectation in my marriage partner to do all of that, then I'm going to be frustrated. They're going to be frustrated because I'm trying to draw something from them Mm -hmm. that God never designed them to give. The most important thing uh, in our life from God's perspective is that we are being transformed more into his likeness. It is not just for our needs to get met. Now, that is where we usually land as humans is I need this and I need people to do more of this but that is not the most important thing to him now as we said he he is concerned about that but the most important thing is that we are being changed into his likeness which is that we are changed into being a giver that we give our life away to others and so marriage other significant relationships is a little bit like a harness that pulls us back away from self-centeredness away from selfishness, which is where our natural bent tends to go, pulls us back on course. If you let a horse loose in the field, they're pretty much just going to roam. But we put a harness on them so that they stay on course. And that, in essence, is what God has designed these relationships for, is it pulls us back, um, not to harm us, not to take the life out of us, but, but to, to 
cause us to be trained into more um, of, of, his, of his nature. It's a little bit like weight training or exercising. If you don't exercise your muscles, they'll atrophy. They'll, they'll become weak. Now, weight training is not fun. If you do it at all, it is not fun. It's not like, oh, good, I can't wait to go get sore. I can't wait to go strain myself. But it actually has a good end result. It is training our muscles. It's, it's pulling them back from, again, selfishness and I don't want to do that. And, but it's putting them back in alignment with the full potential uh, that they have. Uh, exercise is training our heart and our cardiovascular system, and it's keeping it healthy and, and whole, and it's not fun, um, but it does something um, putting us in the right direction. So there's something about this transformation, however, that, that really is, has an interesting outcome. God knows exactly how to fully satisfy our soul. The most satisfied people that I find uh, in life are people that are in this rhythm of giving their life to others. They always push away from self-centeredness into otherness. Now, it doesn't even necessarily mean that they get all of their needs met, but there's something in being like him that satisfies our soul. I have never found anybody that has been able to go get another person and train them to become the right, the perfect kind of person that will meet all of my needs. And ultimately, they're satisfied in that. As a matter of fact, they usually get more and more dissatisfied. Uh, now, I have a lot of people, I run across a lot of people every day that are trying to do that. They are trying to get people to meet their needs in a certain way. But it's a little bit like drinking salt water. Um, it looks like it should satisfy, but it just makes them thirstier. Uh, but God knows what, he, what he's doing. He knows how he has designed us, that something out of this, this tr- place of transformation um, fully satisfies our soul. So in 30 years of working with couples and with families and almost 35 years of being married, because Brent's getting kind of old, um, we have come across some basics that we really want to talk to you about, about all of your relationships. So listen to it for your marriages, but listen to it for other relationships as well, because there's principles that affect us in so many areas. Over the years, I think the biggest thing that we have seen that gets in the way of healthy relationships is what I call the big I. It's all about me. I want to be happy. I want to have my needs met. I want this to happen. I want you to do this. Yeah, there's yous in there, but it's like you aren't doing it right. You should put me first in everything. You should be there whenever I need you. We have this, as Brent said, that self-centeredness that we are focusing on me and my way. But just as he read in 1 Corinthians 13, if you look down just a few verses from that in the love chapter, Paul says, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. There's a reason that that is there in the love chapter. Because we tend, if we're really honest... We tend to be childish, not childlike, but childish in some of our relationships. It's his fault. You started it. I'd act better if you wouldn't do this. We have that basic core within us that we tend to be very selfish like a small child. And we need to learn to put that down, to put away those childish things. Philippians 2, 1 says, if you have any encouragement, 
encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Now, unfortunately, when we read that scripture, there's not a marriage clause or a roommate clause or a sibling clause that says, put everyone first, except for your spouse. And in that case, you just go ahead and demand your own way. You deserve to have what you want. This is talking about all of our relationships. We need to look at how can I put other people first and put down that great I that's in my life. Marriage is about us. There's a reason that scripture says the two become one. We become one, and it is about us. And so the decisions that we make, the things that we do, we have to be considering the us in the relationship instead of just the I. All of our relationships need to be guarded. We need to take care of them. We need to realize that those are precious relationships, whether it's with your spouse or your friend or your sibling or your parent. Those are precious gifts from God. You've heard us say most of the time we treat our relationships like old Tupperware. We should treat treat them like fine china. We should cherish them and take care of them. But it takes work, and we have to be willing to put down I in order to consider those precious and to really take good care of them. It's very easy for us to lose our focus. Philippians 4, 8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, this is really easy in early courtship. Uh, If you've been married for a while, you remember early courtship. Some of you are in early courtship. Uh, Early courtship is what we call, we we have a face-to-face relationship. It's you and me, baby, against the world. It feels so good. We just kind of get, we kind of tune out the rest of the world. Uh, We're telling each other how beautiful and handsome and wonderful they are. And we have like six dates a week. We spend every free minute we can with each other. Uh, We can't keep our hands off each other. We want to hold each other and hold their hand and touch them and hug them. And and it feels incredible. Matter of fact, it, it is a very powerful connection. That's why usually people walk down the aisle with this person. And as a matter of fact, during that time, it is almost impossible to offend each other. Even if you do something very selfish or that you're a real jerk, it's so easy for your partner to go, oh, they didn't mean that. You know, isn't that cute how they do that thing? Um, We just kind of write it off because we have this focus. We think about the good. And that's, it's easy to do because did you notice that we like the same salad dressing? Oh my gosh, we just, as we've talked, I realized we love the same music and, and we, we like the same television shows. Life is, is grand and we, because we, we have the focus. It's, it's all about the positive. But after we get married for a while, a minute and a half, um, we basically turn side to side. And now it's, we got to do life. Now we got to go to work and we start having children and we 
change diapers and we cook and clean and we're cleaning the toilets and we're paying the bills and and uh, then we've got to cut the grass and weed the yard and go to soccer practice and go to t-ball practice and go to soccer practice and we just keep going and now there's nothing evil about any of those those are all legitimate things as a matter of fact most of life is lived here we're not going to sit most of our life staring over candlelight dinners saying sweet nothings into each other you know to each other about the future most of life is lived here but what happens is we don't know how to come back here we don't know how to keep the focus back here because when you're out here the focus tends to get on you need to help me over here do you realize what I'm going through over here? You have no idea what I go through with these kids. You have no idea what I go through at the office. And we've lost sight. We, we've, it's like you, you need to do something more for me. We've lost sight of all of the, the beauty, of the lovely things, the good things that we were drawn and attracted to at first. In the next few weeks, we're going to talk a little bit about how do we move our muscles, in essence, our relationship muscles back face-to-face, and how do we nurture and build and strengthen. As a matter of fact, on the website, you're going to start seeing a marriage section with marriage resources. We're going to have different, different things that you can begin to implement in your life that can help move you back. So we, have to be, we have to proactively do this because most of life is lived here, and it will take most of the energy that you have. And we give and give and give and do take care of all these squeaky wheels. And it's very easy um, to slowly start disconnecting. That just tends to be what naturally happens in our life. So um, we're going to talk about how do we push back together. But the problem is, is we lose focus. We lose focus on who this person really is and all of the good that they, were, they brought to the table. That part of the image of God that they represented. And then we begin to experience what we call the, some of you have heard us talk about the 90-10 principle. Because in that initial attraction phase where we're so drawn to this person, it feels so powerful. We pretty much think that we've found nirvana. You know, I've found everything that I would ever want. It's just awesome. This relationship is awesome. Well, the reality is there's no way they could be 100% of what you would really long for in a mate. God would not even allow that or we would then start worshiping it. We would start worshiping created things instead of the creator. Um, and that would be our whole life. The reality is we usually marry somebody that's about 80 to 90% of what you would like to see having a marriage partner. That leaves about 10 to 20% of things that you would love to have that they don't have. They haven't had them. They don't, haven't had it. They don't have it now. And they probably won't ever have. <laughs> now... Now, as marriage counselors, we believe that, yes, we can work on it. Uh, some relationships go, gosh, I wish I felt 80%. You know, they're feeling like they're down in the 60s or 50s. And, you know, so we help them kind of get back up to that 80. Sometimes we've helped couples move from 80 up to 85 or 90% where they kind of collaborate and work together uh, well as a team. But it'll never be 100%. And the risk in that, because this affects all of our relationships, it'll, it'll affect your marriage, it'll affect roommate situations, it'll met affect your family. It will even affect your church life. There's no way that a church can meet 100% of your needs. And what tends to start happening then is it begins to affect our attitude. Now, this is on a continuum. The lower end of the continuum over here, it just affects my attitude. I don't really say anything about it, but I just begin to go, gosh, I wish, I wish they were a little bit more like that guy. I wish they had a job like he does. Man, we'd be able to live in a little nicer house. And I wish he would cook like that lady. Or I wish, I wish this or I wish that. And we don't really even say anything. 
but it begins to poison our attitude and it affects how we relate to them in other areas. Move up the continuum a little bit more and now not only is it affecting my attitude, but I actually start now being critical. Gosh, I wish you would do this and I wish you spent more time with our kids, you know, like John does. He coaches the t-ball team and I wish you did more stuff like that or I wish you would, you know, pack the dishwasher right or, you know, whatever. Um, um, And we begin to actually critiquing our partner and it begins to break down and tear down um, just the very fiber of that relationship. And then what I deal a lot with is on the upper end of the continuum is I can't live without that 10 to 20%. Surely God wants me to be happy. Um, I need that. And so I'm going to go get it. I'm going to change churches. I'm going to go get another person. The problem is, oftentimes, by the time they get out there, yes, they got the 10%, but by the time they look back, gosh, this person will never be the father of my children. This person will never be this or never that. Because, again, we lose focus. Now, this is going to affect all of our relationships, and the key is that we pay attention, that we understand that this is an, it, it, this is an impact on our life, and I have a choice I can either choose to focus on that 10 to 20% or I can choose to focus on the, the 80 or 90% of the really wonderful things that God has blessed me with, with this roommate or with my marriage partner or my coworker or my boss or my church or whatever. Uh, it's, it's really my decision. It's what I choose to focus on. But we have to work at it. If we are left to what would happen naturally, it's like what happens to our body if we don't exercise. Our muscles will atrophy. We will start going downhill. Our relationships will start going downhill unless we actively turn our focus towards the good and positive and wonderful things in our spouse. We have to meditate on the good or we will go right to the negative very easily. So being counselors... We, of course, have an exercise for you to do. They should be under the seats in front of you. I don't want you to do it right now, but I, I am going to well, explain it. Go ahead and get it. it. Yeah, ahead get and get it. it, but you don't actually do the whole thing. I'm going to explain it, and then you can take it home. On the back, there are a number of adjectives. And what I want you to do is whatever relationship you're looking at, whether it's your spouse or maybe even with one of your children or your roommate that's driving you nuts, I want you to go through and I want you to circle the things, the good characteristics that you see in them. And then after you do that, circle as many as you want. After you do that, I want you to go to the front of the the sheet and I want you to pick the top five characteristics or qualities that you see in them and list those out. Then we would like you to take some time and sit with that other person and say, I just want to share the things about you that I really appreciate. Now, if somebody is sharing them with you, just be quiet. Don't go, oh, I am not that patient. I can't believe you said that. Just be quiet (laughs) and listen to them. Let them share that with you. And then when you're finished, let them know how that felt. You know, there's something really powerful about hearing the things that somebody values in us or that somebody appreciates. So we want to encourage you to do this in all areas of your life, in all your relationships, because it really helps you focus on the good and it helps you focus on the positive. Now, the reason why scripture encourages us to focus on the good is there's a couple of powerful things that happen other than the lights going out. One of them is when we think about the good, 
we have peace. When we think about the negative, we spend a whole lot of time in our brain going, yeah, and they're bad about this and this and this and this things. And we feel unrest. But when we focus on the good things, we have that peace and that calm that happens. We're thankful for the things that the Lord has blessed us with in that particular person. The second thing is that old idea of, I told you I loved you when I married you, and if I change my mind, I'll let you know. That doesn't work. Our spouse needs to hear more than that. Our children need to hear more than, of course I love you, I'm your parent. The people around us need to be affirmed because the minute they walk out that door, they are going to be bombarded with all these messages about how they've messed up, how they don't measure up, how they're not good enough, all the bad things that they've done. And we have the opportunity to speak life to the people around us. We have the opportunity to tell them how great and awesome they are and all the wonderful things that they have in their lives. In your marriage relationship, you are the most powerful human voice in your partner's life. And you can build them up and you can encourage them in growth. You can encourage them to continue on to blossom or you can knock the legs right out from underneath them. We can either remind people around us of the truth of God, how loved they are, how valuable they are, that they are created for a purpose, or we can remind them of the lies of the enemy. So we have the opportunity in everybody that we interact with, and specifically with our spouses, with the people close to us, we have the opportunity to build them up and remind them of the truth of God in their lives. Now, again, as counselors, we're kind of big on exercises. As a matter of fact, what I would love to do is I'd love to just interview all of you right after the service. <laughs> um, tell me what you heard. How are you choosing to put that into practice? And then I need you to call me on Thursday and tell me how you're coming. Okay. <laughs> now, the limit of us not being able to do that with hundreds of people here is that all we can do is drop this in your hands. We can tell you how important this is, how... Um, powerful it can be, it'll be up to you to do something with this. This won't do anything just because you have the idea of it unless you actually carry it out. Now, we're not naive enough to think that if you'll do this, this will fix every challenge that you'll ever face um, in your marriage, okay? Uh, putting, putting a healthy marriage together is a little bit like, an, like putting a, a jigsaw puzzle together. My wife loves these. They give me a migraine. Um, but uh, because for hours, you can't tell anything that what it's looking like. It's just little piece after little piece after little piece after little piece. That's kind of what put, putting a, mar- a healthy marriage together is. But an exercise like this, something, uh, something like this, can do more than you could ever imagine. When you be, it can begin to turn you back face to face. It can begin to, to, to speak life in, in a very, uh, very powerful way. Just in closing, a couple of thoughts I want to leave with you. The wonder, the wonder about scripture is that it speaks to us on so many different levels. There's a scripture that I love that I've come to believe that it's directly from the heart of God about marriage and relationships. But you wouldn't think on the surface it has anything to do with marriage. It's about, a tra- it's, it's, it's about the treasure in the field, parables in Matthew 13. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. It's a little bit what marriage is like, is I'm giving up this lifestyle. I'm giving up singleness. 
And sometimes you got to sell everything, literally. Um, sometimes it takes a huge sacrifice. But now I am coming and I am committing to buying this field. Now I see this treasure, but this treasure comes in the field. When the field was bought here, not all the field was a treasure. Matter of fact, the field comes with thistles and weeds and stumps and challenges and difficulties. That's what you're marrying when you commit your life to someone. You're committing to every challenge that they've ever faced in their life, every rejection that they've experienced, every trauma, every hurt, every disappointment. I'm making a commitment to the in-laws, to crazy Uncle Harry, to the outlaws, to all, all the things that are about this person. And once again, it's about, am I staying focused on the treasure? Am I paying attention to the treasure and keeping that in, in proper perspective? Um, but I have to commit my life to the whole. I believe that that's why marriage is soul training. It is training our soul to become more Christ-like. Because that is not our natural tendency. Because our natural tendency is to think about me, what I need, and what I want. And dealing with all the weeds and thistles isn't easy. I don't want all that. I just want all treasure. I don't want the challenges that come with that. But that's what we're committing to. That's why I believe that this is absolutely not possible without the power of God in our life. When I see people trying to be married, but they do not understand the nature of God and the power of the Holy Spirit in their life, I don't think they could possibly pull it off in the context of what God's original plan was. That's why I think people are so confused about marriage in our culture, having all kinds of ideas about what marriage is and whether it's really even important or not. And do we really need to do that? Well, let's just kind of live together for a while and see and all of those kind of things. It's because they don't recognize what, what God has done here and the potential power that comes um, through, through the Holy Spirit in our life. That is why, as we look through Scripture here, um, just listen to some final verses. Listen to um, why it is that we're able to do what we're able to do. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. I don't think you have a chance of forgiving somebody unless you know what it's like to be forgiven, unless you realize you need to be forgiven and, and what that experience is like, that you feel forgiven by God. Only then, when you really understand what that's about, can you then pass that on to somebody else. Uh, Colossians 3.13 speaks of the same thing. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive, again, as the Lord forgave you. Romans 15.7, accept one another than just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. The only, the only way you can fully accept another with all the stuff that they come with um, is if you feel fully accepted, that you understand what it means for God to accept you with all your, your bumps and bruises and, and the times that you tend to go sideways and slip across the line that you still feel accepted. Do you know that he doesn't get mad at you and send you to your room without supper and now he's not going to talk to you until you somehow serve penance and get your act together and, and be a good boy or a good girl again? That you understand that his acceptance, he understands um, 
why we do what we do. Yet, he is a good father that keeps putting us back on course, keeps challenging us back on course. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So, unless we've really been touched by God and had this experience with God, we are going to flail in relationships. But we have this opportunity to lean into him, to open our lives up in a greater way. Now, once you have accepted Christ in your life, you have the power that created the universe inside you. You have the power of the Holy Spirit. But I believe so often we have limited that power to a certain room in our house of our life. It's like, God, I accept you, but I want you to stay, you know, stay here. I don't want you to mess with the rest of me. I want you to stay here. And it limits the potential of what we, we can do through the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. Now, we've been talking about Lent, that we're stepping into a new season here. It's 40 days leading up, leading up to Easter. The whole idea of Lent is making room for God. How do I make room for him? How do I start going through my house of my life and open another door and saying, I want to make room for you here. Open another door. I want to make, I want to make room for you here. Open another door. I want to make room for you here. We have this opportunity to do this together. I encourage you to sign up for one of the Lent groups. There's something about kind of us doing this together and getting in connection with each other and sharing our stories with each other that does something um, really incredible. Um, but it's our choice. Let's make room for the, the, the power of, of uh, the creator of marriage, the one that designed marriage, the one that designed relationship for that purpose. Let's make room for him in a greater way. I do believe uh, we're a couple months here. We're going to uh, celebrate 35 years. Uh, I do believe marriage can really be heaven on earth. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have to start by submitting our life to him to really make it happen. So let's do it. Let's step into a new season.